We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. I identify with that a little bit. I remember sort of coming out to myself when I was 16 and 17 and thinking, well, I don't like softball. (laughs) (laughs) I'm scared of motorcycles. (laughs) I don't really know, like from the media, I don't really know what other things you can do as the L word. Um, <laughs> but it, you have to be able to see yourself. Um, you have to be you have to be able to see, you know, who you could become. The tour ratio. OK, though. The tour ratio. OK, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> You's a phenomenal person. I mean, you legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. Rachel Maddow is an amazing person. She's an extraordinary broadcaster. She's a great writer. She's back with her fourth book, Prequel. And she's an amazing person. I've been friends with her for a long time, and it is always a joy to talk to her because she is so brilliant. She wanted to talk about fascism. That's what her book prequel is about. So let's get into it. It's Rachel Maddow on Touré Show. So when we work together, and I don't even know if you know this, like you set this tone for all the hosts of like, She's performing at extraordinary level. Like the work is, you know, awesome. And the show is incredibly successful and she's super humble. So if she's doing that, if the most successful show here and she's humble, then you better be humble. And it just sent a nice message to everybody. That's nice of you to say. Did you not? Were you not aware of that? (laughs) I'm not very aware of anything. I'm kind of a... um, no, I mean, I, I definitely wasn't like setting out to do a, no. do anything other than my show. But that's very nice to hear about it having like to it, it, that that I had some sort of kind of sociological effect that was positive. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't think it was nothing you said. I don't ever remember you addressing everybody or oh, saying God, no. no, no, no. But it was just leading by example and hmm. like you know this person's like that. Like you know you keep your ego in check because she's doing better than you and you know. Look how nice she is. You know, I, f- I feel like at a lot of news organizations, at a lot of organizations, the culture um, evolves over time. It can yeah. change. But, like, people are either nice or they're not. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And it doesn't necessarily have to be the boss who sets the tone or, like, the primetime anchor or whatever it is. But there's something infectious about the culture of an organization. And if people are getting ahead in terms of what the organization is trying to do while also being mean to their colleagues yeah. or also being selfish or gossipy or backbiting or something. It sets the tone and then everybody does that. Yeah. And I have been in lots of organizations like that. And I am so happy that MSNBC is not like that. No. Like we are in a good place. People yeah. are collegial and respectful. It doesn't mean there isn't conflict and there aren't drama and problems, but there is, I think, an expectation. And I don't claim credit for it, but I do think there's an expectation that we are not screamers. Not and that we are respectful to each other and that we help each other. And I also felt like clearly Rachel read the whole book, whatever you're <laughs> right. Clearly Lawrence read the book. Chris Hayes read the book and the footnotes. Right. Mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. you better like at least make an effort to do a deep intellectual dive into whatever you're doing, because we're not just no, nobody is coasting on footnotes and, you know, those sort of things. No, do the work. Yeah. yeah. Like the work ethic is respected. Like, that's great. And that's, I think, both setting the tone that that is what is expected of you, but also knowing that your colleagues believe it and are doing the work and are trying and are not 
pretending. I mean, that's the thing. If you haven't done the work, what are you doing? You're pretending. You're yeah. pretending like you've done the work when somebody else has done it and they fed it to you and you don't really get it. And that ultimately, that just shows and your colleagues know it and it's disrespectful. Like we all only, all of us working full time in the news business have a full time job in the news business. Yeah. There's no excuse not to do the work. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm happy. We are a stable group with stable leadership and stable values um, that are, that demand a lot of people and that are, re people are rewarded for the right things. I admired always your A blocks. Mm. You just tell these long, and it, re it reminded me of radio, yeah, right? And Paul Harvey, and like, we're going to tell you a story. I remember, I think it was around 9-11, you were like, here's this little uh, electric truck that runs on, and I'm like, <laughs> where is she? And it was like 10 minutes on the truck and how fast the truck, and I'm like, where is she going? And I know she's going somewhere, right? You remember this one, right? And then it was like, and this battery was, and like, oh, and the reveal came, like, oh my God, this is so completely on the news. And we thought she's starting in left field and then found her way to home plate. It's like, that intellectual journey was always like fun. That's my favorite thing. I mean, I don't try to be deliberately obscure. Like the way that I get into storytelling like that is that I am trying to understand something or I'm trying to, you know, uh, teach myself something. Yes. And in chasing down the story and trying to get to the origin, origin of it and trying to get to a thing where I'm comfortable enough with this body of knowledge that I can teach it to somebody else, I find a thing that I find interesting that helped me understand it. And then I try to recreate that experience that I had myself for the people who are listening to me. And <laughs> I mean, I'm glad to hear that it works for you. It does not work for everybody. I mean, some people do well, not. Well, if we love you, that it's going to work. That's going to write. We got to. But a lot of people don't want every story to start with, you know, first a meteor hit the earth. <laughs> like every story that I told but, but goes back that far. But what you're doing there, you're not saying I am the anchor who knoweth everything and I am disseminating the information. I am figuring this out with you, mm -hmm. right? And like the inner the the B block, right? The intro to the B block would always conclude with, did I get that right? Yeah. Right. So I'm always saying, I may or may not know everything, right? And the anchor is supposed to know everything, but like we don't have to, right? Yeah. And it's kind of liberating in that parasocial relationship that I don't know everything. I did the work mm -hmm. and now I can talk to you about it, but I'm not the smartest person in the room necessarily. Yeah, I am trying to figure this out just like you are trying to figure this out. We are both part of the public. I have a job in the media, which means my job is expository writing, basically, reading yeah. comprehension, expository yeah. writing and reporting. Um, so let us let me tell you what I think is going on and then let me check with somebody who probably really does know. Yeah. And that to me, I mean, it's not a very complicated formula, but it is. it does have the benefit, I think, of some transparency, that you're not... Pretending that some pretending that somebody else's work is your own. Right. You're not pretending like you are omniscient, and you're not pretending like there is only one way to see the story, and I understand it as the omnipotent narrator. So wait, I want to talk about your book, but you used to work five nights a week, <laughs> right? And now you're on the air once a week, once a week plus as news requires, right? And yeah. and you know an election day, right? We see, but hardly ever on air compared to where you used to be. Yeah, by choice. Yeah. What are you doing? Aside from <laughs> writing books, right? And we yeah. love the podcast. So, well, what are you doing? Because that's a lot of free time. Well, I wish or it was. Freer, I mean, freer time. It's Excuse different. Me. It means I'm just working on different things okay. is really what it means. So I did the Ultra podcast, which was super satisfying and interesting. And then I wrote this book, Prequel. Um, I'm working on two different movies, um, a movie of Bagman, with, um, which is the Sparrow Agnew story with Ben Stiller. Um, and a movie of Ultra with Steven Spielberg. I've heard of him. Um, I am working on a scripted TV show that I am trying to uh, develop with uh, NBC Universal. I am working on Ultra Season 2 as a podcast right now. Um, I've got, I did a different podcast documentary series called Dejan News, which may yet have a second season. I've got like two or three other documentary or docuseries projects going on. So I'm just. Are you busier? I am busier. The problem that I'm having is that I used to work really hard, but then I'd go on the air at nine and I'd go off the air at 10 and then I'd be off. Yeah. Now I don't have that off switch at 10 o'clock, <laughs> Tuesday through Friday nights. And so I'm working more, wow. but it's, but I'm healthier. I'm, uh, cause working on the five day a week show, the way I was getting burned out was 
the daily 9 p.m. deadline. Yeah. The grind of producing for the day. I just was thinking shorter thoughts and reading shorter things and just not not getting smarter. I was getting dumber. Um, and I needed to have different horizons, different types of projects to work on. And so I'm working more, but it's um, on different things. So you were tired of the way the show, the structure of doing the show asked you to think. It was just wearing me down. Yeah. It was, um, it's just, it's just hard to do. Um, and I respect people who've been able to do it for decades and decades and decades. I basically did it for 15 years. Yeah. Um, and just felt like I was so burned out that I was going to have to stop working in this field altogether. Wow. And then NBC was very kind to me and they said, we would like to keep you. Would you, can we work something out where you work a different way? Yeah. And so we're trying this and hopefully it's, hopefully it's working and they, it was an incredible, incredible show an incredible achievement. So just a moment ago, we saw Jenna Ellis saying, oh, President Trump did not plan to leave the Oval Office at all. We were just going to stay. Right. And we told him like, you can't do this. Like, no, we're just not leaving. And that specter of fascism has been hanging over us. I think we recognized how he seemed like a fascist leader when he was running. I, you know, I remember talking to Tommy Vitor and other people about like, there's not a mechanism that forces you to leave. You just do. But right. what if somebody said, I don't want to leave? Right. Um, what is it? Let's start here. What is it in the, in a given person that makes them want to be a fascist? Mm. I don't know. I mean, I think that there is like, if you try to be kind of big hearted about it, and try to be empathetic about it and understand why our country is in this moment. I don't necessarily feel like the leader is the big explanatory factor. Okay. Like you, you need like fascism is obviously an authoritarian form of government where everything gets focused on the leader. And so the leader ends up being important. But why does a country give up democracy and become an authoritarian country, become a fascist country? It, the country has to want to do it. You can't come in as a leader and impose that on a country that says no to that kind of form of government. And I, I do feel like in democracy, where the basic idea is we all decide this together, um, so like in, in the hearts of every citizen in a democracy is a little taste for authoritarian government because on almost every issue, almost every person – looks around the rest of the country, looks around at all the citizens and thinks, I know we're all supposed to decide this together, but on this issue, maybe you shouldn't get a say. Or on this issue, I actually know the right thing to do. Or on this issue, you guys have completely the wrong idea and should be excluded from the decision-making process here. Like that, it's kind of a human thing to want um, to sort of seize control, um, to do things more efficiently, to do things in a way that um, exclude other people from the process. I just, I do think that it is human. And I'm trying to be empathetic toward that in understanding why we are at a position in our country where people are willing to give up the idea that, you know, your political opponents are allowed to live yeah. and your political opponents are allowed to potentially beat you in the next election. Yeah. And if you are beaten in the next election, you will leave and your political opponents will take over. I mean, that is the miracle of democracy. People are willing to give that up now. But I think that, you know, it's hard to be a 250-year-old democracy. It's hard to um believe in the collective project that is citizenship in a democracy and we have to work for it and it argue is, for it. It is hard to understand, you, you're starting to explain it, but yeah, the core of the question, why would people who have democracy choose fascism instead? Is, 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 I mean, there must be a fear, right? Isn't there usually a fear component? They're afraid of some of the people. Yeah. You get led to it, right? There, there are always people who've got some sort of anti-democratic project that would like to move things away from democracy. And they do a few different things, right? They definitely... Um, pick a minority or a specified group and they don't just talk, they don't just denigrate them. They create toxic conspiracy theories around them, that they are secretly powerful, Mm. that they are the cabal, that they're the people who are really pulling the strings. And so that both justifies violence and other negative things toward those groups of people. But it also makes you think, oh, well, that group, that evil, powerful group they can't be in a decision-making process with us. They're taking advantage of us. They're devious. 
they're secretly powerful. We actually need a government that doesn't include them, that protects us from them. Okay, you're halfway there. I think also people are led to believe when, you, when you're told that there's a secret group that's secretly powerful behind the scenes, that's also telling you that whoever you're voting for, that's a useless step. That's a pointless thing that you're doing. You think you're voting for a change in government, but really the swamp, the cabal, the evil elites, the globalists, the Jews, whatever it is, they're the ones who are always going to be in control and your little voting thing doesn't matter. Okay, well, that makes people not want to participate in voting. Then you bring violence and intimidation to bear on what ought to be the political space. So working as a poll worker in Fulton County, Georgia, or you know, uh, uh, certifying the vote in Washington or, or any other, or even participating in political discussion online or locally, it subjects you to intimidation and violence. What does that do? It means that normal people don't participate in politics because they're scared and normal people shouldn't be expected to put up with that sort of thing. And so if you can get all of those things going and you tell people, don't believe journalism, don't believe science, don't believe experts, Sports. just go with your gut. And the leader will tell you what to think. Go with what your trusted leader tells you. Once you got all of those things going, it is very easy to lead people, to just nudge people away from democracy, giving up on the idea of elections as our decision process, giving up on the idea of a collective citizenry that is diverse and multiracial, and telling people, you know, we're the only ones who really have this country's interests at heart and we should rule. And they— typically will give the people some sort of kitchen table thing that they can hold on to of like, look, it's working. Mussolini made the trains run on time, yeah. right? Castro gave them incredible health care, right? So we're going to give you something that you can hold tangibly. Look, this is better. Yeah. So we're doing fine. Yes. Huey Long, Huey Long in Louisiana, who people at the time said that he was America, the best candidate for America's Hitler. He was described not, not as an insult, but as just a descriptive matter in court cases as the, at the time as the dictator of Louisiana. He's the closest thing we've ever had to an American Fuhrer, an American Il Duce, and he did free school textbooks yeah. and paved lots of roads yeah. and built a huge— State Capitol, skyscraper State Capitol in Baton Rouge with, a, with an apartment for himself at the very top. And even when he left Louisiana to go to Washington, he, when he was no longer governor of the state, he kept his apartment at the top of the state Capitol. Right? So, I mean, they, they do something for you. There's, a, there's always a, a populist element to it. It's national socialism, right? Yeah. Mussolini started as a socialist. Mussolini ended up running the trains on time and having that be part of his populist appeal. But it's, it's all in the service of accruing power, centralizing all power, and devaluing all other forms of authority. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. 
On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Do we not see this sort of structure happen far more often on the right? I feel like the left would not accept a a fascism. I don't know what fascism from the left would look like, right? I think it's almost always from the right. Is it not? No, I mean, there's definitely left-wing authoritarianism that has the same terrible human impact on people. I mean, I feel like left and right doesn't matter once you're talking about authoritarian versus democratic forms of government. Like, for example, going back to Huey Long, people at the time didn't know how to characterize him, whether he was left or right, because in some ways it kind of seemed like he was promoting a form of very left-wing populist, maybe socialism, maybe communism. And people also thought he was kind of Hitler. (laughs) And he, I mean, Huey Long mounted an armed invasion of New Orleans. He used the, 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 used armed national guardsmen under his control as governor to launch a military assault on a city in his state and take over the city government by force of arms. Now, is that left wing or right wing? I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> like it's yeah, just, yeah. it's about playing power and it's about getting rid of all uh, competing forms of authority. And ultimately in a, in a fascist or authoritarian movement, you don't have any other source of authority in the government. You don't have any other source of authority in the military. Oftentimes you don't have any other source of authority in religion or in the economy or in culture. Um, And in fascism specifically, as a citizen, you don't have the right to opt out. As a citizen, you have to go to the rallies. As a citizen, you have to salute. You have to wear the badge. You have to have the portrait of the leader in your house. It has to be a mass movement. Not every form of authoritarianism does that. But, you know, we are deciding right now as a country whether we want to be a place where, you know, as I said, your political opponents are left alive and sometimes they're allowed to win. I mean— And a lot of Americans are willing to give that up right now. Are we at a point where American democracy has been permanently damaged? Or or is the car hanging off the cliff or is the car gone over the cliff? Nothing's permanent. (laughs) I I don't. And it's very hard to get your democracy back once you give it away. But I think a lot of Americans within the sound of our voices right now would say if we lost it, well, we we are among the people who would fight till the end of our lives to get it back. Yes. So I don't think that it's never that the die is just cast. But that's part of why I wrote the book that I did about this book about the late 30s and early 40s, because um, the the ultra-right, pro-fascist, pro-Nazi movement that was active in the United States in the lead up to World War II, they were very influential, very powerful, and they got really far. And we've completely forgotten about them as if it never happened. Are we seeing the same thing? Is it the same as now, similar? I mean, we're seeing a different version of an ultra-right anti-democratic movement. I mean, only the Nazis are Nazis. Only Hitler is Hitler, right? There's no analogy there. Uh, The prequel of the title, the the reference is actually to the good guys, to the Americans who fought against the ultra-right back there. Those are the people that I think are the sort of prequel to our struggle now. Those are the people who have stories to tell that we can learn from and apply their lessons learned. Are we really fighting against it now? Like, I, I feel like we are, but I feel like we could be more aggressive if we really, I mean, I feel like there are media voices saying, guys, we are facing a very serious threat to democracy. And the people who are actually in place, who could actually be in, are, they, they, they're, not, they're not fighting as hard as we want them to be fighting. That's a good I mean, that's the, that's the question, right? I mean, that's, that's the heart of it is how hard are we fighting against this thing? I mean, ultimately 80 years from now, when somebody, whatever the, you know, whenever the new version of books is or podcasts is or whatever it is, 80 years from now, looking back at this time, somebody's going to write the history of what you and I did, of what our generation did to fight this dynamic. And what do we want 
to brag about? What do we want to be able to say that our generation did to hold on to democracy when we were up against an ultra-right, anti-democratic, violent movement that wanted to put America into a strongman form of government to give up our democracy? What did we do to stop it? What will we say? What kinds of anti-fascist projects are there in the United States and what types of Americans are working hard in them? That's the question of our time. That turns out that's what our generation's reckoning is going to be. I mean, have we as a country responded to January 6th as forcefully as one would expect to send a message, this can never happen again? I don't think so. Well, is January 6th the culmination of something? Was that the end mm-hmm. or was that the commencement of something? Was that the, was that the, was that the declaration of war? Was that we are, was that the, the, the manifestation of a pledge on the ultra right to use any means necessary, including mass violence to get what they want. If that was day one for them, if that was the start for them. then I think, which I think in some ways it was, then I think it's clear that the response has not been adequate. I think there is a tendency to think of January 6th as the last gasp or the last thing they tried. And boy, didn't that go wrong in the end? Well, now the, Front runner for the Republican presidential nomination is calling people who are in jail for January 6th related offenses, calling them hostages mm-hmm. and calling them political prisoners and saying that he's going to pardon all of them and making heroes out of them. I mean, weirdly, like making weird propaganda out of them where they sing and he he kind of raps alongside them. And there's mm. I mean, that's that's not the sign of a movement that thinks January 6th was a mistake. That's a sign of a movement that thinks January 6th was day one. We also see, we know he, Trump, may not have left. He may have said, I don't want to leave. And yet there's no safeguard to make sure, God forbid he wins next time, that he would leave. Or Biden. Like, I mean, like, you know, there should, should there not be some more safeguard on the office to make sure that you believe when it's when it's your time to leave? I mean, I mean, what do you do? I, I mean, the. I think Donald Trump hasn't had a very long political career. He got into, um, he flirted with running for president a few times, but he, he jumped in mm-hmm. in 2015. When he started competing in the Republican primaries in 2016, even the ones that he won, he said they were rigged. Mm-hmm. And then he won the general election. He won. And he said it was rigged. <laughs> and then he. In, ahead of competing for re-election in 2020, before the election ever happened, he said it was rigged. rigged. Yeah. And now he's saying that 2024, in which he's going to compete again, is rigged. And so what does that tell you? <laughs> it tells you that his con- his contentions about American elections have nothing to do with the facts of those elections. Right, right, right. He just doesn't think that his political standing should be subject to elections. Mm. He thinks that he should be in office without being tested by the electorate because he doesn't believe that elections work. He doesn't believe they're real and he doesn't want his followers to think of them as real either. So once you've got that, why would you think that putting him back in office would effectuate some chain of events in which he then subjects himself to the electorate again and agrees to go along with what they say? I mean, it's just, it's like fool me once, you know what I mean? (laughs) And yet there's what millions of Americans lining up to be fooled again. Which we should be empathetic about in terms of understanding what it is about his message, about getting rid of democracy, about elections being foolhardy, about a secret cabal that only he can he only he is strong enough to protect people from. What is it that appeals about that message? Because you don't just have to compete with the guy; yeah. you have to compete with the way he appeals to his followers and understanding. The function, the anti-democratic function of all these things he's selling them, I think, is the first step toward trying to meet those needs in the electorate through healthier projects. But when you say projects, empathy for those folks, I'm surprised to hear that. And I'm, I'm curious where that comes from. And I feel great anger toward them um, as far as you are adults who are allowing yourself to be li- repeatedly lied to, repeating lies, saying things that make no sense. And, you know, so on an intellectual level, I am just blown away that you believe these things to be true, that you believe to be true. Mm. Um, 
But it becomes very emotional because I personally am under attack. And you personally yeah. are under attack from this MAGA-ness. Yeah. So, you know, I wonder, does it break through? I mean, you know, on an intellectual level, we could say these poor people are getting the wrong information, but then I'm breaking it. Like, no, you are purposefully swallowing the wrong information and it's putting my life, my children's lives, your family's life in danger. Yes. But in order to fight for your country and in order to fight against the movement that they are part of that is trying to overturn the democratic process of government in the United States and institute a strongman form of government instead, in order to fight it, you have to understand why so many people are part of it and then meet them where they are. And there is something about being told that it's a cabal, it's a swamp, that the that voting is fake, that the system never is responsive to the people, and so you need a strong man on your side mm. rather than this fake system that supposedly meets your needs. You have to understand how the psychology of the of Trumpism works. Luckily for us, it's the same psychology as every strong man would be authoritarian sure. in every country all over the world. They all do the same thing. Um, and you have to try to unwire people to be satisfied with that as their political goals. I, I think also, the, you know, there is a role for the criminal justice system to the extent that one of the things they're playing with is violence. I mean, anytime you are using violence or intimidation to get your way, you are committing a crime. And the Justice Department and the criminal justice system has to be protected from political influence so that those things are prosecuted as crimes. You have to keep a bright line between violence and nonviolence in the sure. political space. Are, are you not scared? Yes, but that's not. I mean, yes, sure. I, I'm as scared as anybody, but I don't think it's a helpful place to think strategically from. You think that I'm being too cold about it? I I think that in this specific conversation, you are approaching it very intellectually. And I'm like, 100%, we need to be intellectual about it. But then also... When you come into your affecting my life, your life, then I'm like, well, I also have this emotional thing of like, hello, <laughs> like yeah. the enemy is at the gate. We do need to do. It's not it's not uh, hypothetical or symbolic like this is this feels very real. You yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. Somebody was arraigned in federal court in Georgia yesterday for threatening to kill Fonnie Willis and. <sighs> Fentanyl-laced envelopes were sent to random election workers in multiple locations within yeah. the last week, and I mean the, I mean, this just is real. The, the violence just, is real. Just the way that it it emboldens other people who are anonymous to us, yeah, to say or do things to us, you know, or people like us we love. Mm -hmm. um, it unleashes a lot. Yes, I mean, and it's just it just shows you the human cost of what they're playing with, right? Yeah. Like what's the value to the would-be authoritarian leader in trying to overturn a system of government like this and take over? Oh, well, you get to be Il Duce. You know, you get to be the man. You get to be effectively the king or whatever it is that you want to be. Good for you. What have you done in the meantime in order to get there? That the message and the crusade to convince millions of Americans that their political opponents are not just political opponents, but enemies and vermin and people who need to be exterminated because they are a threat. That is something that you wire people for in a way that has generational consequences. Yeah. Whether or not it ever you know, accelerates to eliminationist violence, which it usually does in dictatorships, you are telling people to see other human beings as termites. Yeah. And once you're there, how do you ever put that back into some sort of humane, spiritually sound place. Yeah. Um, but that's what they're doing. That's where we are. That's he's he's now you know using terms like vermin to talk about his political enemies, saying that they're going to be crushed, um, and trying to get his followers to get bloodthirsty about it. Yeah. It's happening. Yeah. It's it's real. And so um, you can't just point at and, at it and say bad. You have to understand how it works and meet people where they are so that they do not fall for it so that they don't become part of his army. What, okay. So what is a prescriptive or a point in history that we're going to learn in this book mm. that would help us understand where we are going or where we might be going as we're walking a similar path? For me, the 
most prescriptive stuff from history, from the lead up to World War II, where we had this shockingly large pro-Nazi, pro-fascist movement in this country, um, is that you need the justice system. You need to prosecute people who are committing crimes and who are, you know, in the case of the Christian Front Militia in 1940, literally stockpiling bombs and plotting the assassination of members of Congress. Like you need to you need to prosecute people, but you cannot count on the criminal justice system doing all of it. You need journalism to expose what's going on. You need activists to be really brave and do things like infiltrate these groups, particularly when they're operating in secret wow. and expose them. Um, you need members of Congress and other elected officials who are playing footsie with these folks to pay a political cost for it. That's why I think the January 6th investigation was actually more important than we give it credit for. It didn't result in any you know, prosecutions, but it defined the truth of that experience and nailed all the members of Congress who were part of it in a way that is permanently part of history and that they will someday be held accountable for by the voters. Like you need, you need all of that stuff. You need all these different kinds of things. And ultimately what happened in, you know, in 1941 is that Germany declared war on us. And so part of what happened is that we went to war against a foreign fascist power that was propagandizing and working in this country in a way that we didn't really appreciate. And that, <laughs> that has a way of putting up, that has a way of answering the question. And I don't think it's going to be like that now. There's not going to be some war that makes everything clarified here. This is going to be something that we fight at home amongst ourselves. Yeah, it's not a global international war, but there is, there willingness to be violent in their serves their cause is quite clear. Mm -hmm. And I think if we look at Charleston and January 6th and other things and think that's going to be the last, like, no, surely not. Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers getting convicted for seditious conspiracy mm -hmm. was a big deal because it's really hard to convict people of sedition. Mm -hmm. um, if you think about it, if the government is putting you on trial for trying to overthrow the government, by definition, it means you failed because there's still a government <laughs> to put you on trial. <laughs> so you're being you're being put on trial for failing to overthrow the government. But once you're in that position, you you know inherently can argue, oh, it wasn't serious. Oh, I'm just a crackpot. Oh, it was never going to succeed. Oh, these charges are overblown because you didn't succeed. Yeah. So that defense is inherently there in a sedition case, as is the constitutional protections that we have to espouse terrible political ideas and to say terrible things and to associate with terrible people for terrible purposes. We have all these protections. And so that those kind of two things together, constitutional protections and the inherent fact that you didn't succeed, makes it almost impossible to get a conviction there. And yet the Justice Department did, both for the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. And that is different. That is something that is, we are now better at that than we used to be. Remind me, my kid came to me the other day and he said, you know, the, the worst thing to get convicted of is attempted murder because you're in trouble forever and you failed at your job. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's, what it, it's That's worse. Cold. It's worse than murder because you didn't even do the job. <laughs> it's like, wow, okay. That's well, one way of looking at it, honey. Thank you for that. Trying to crime. Now <laughs> that's the shame. Yeah. <laughs> I was bad at crime and I'm still in trouble forever. That is a deep thinker. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, they are. They are. Yeah. How old are your kids now? My oldest is 16. Oh, wow. Happy birthday. Thank you. Wow. And uh, my baby is 14. Wow. And who had the attempted murder observation? Oh, that was my oldest. Oldest. They, they, wow. <laughs> they say all kind of crazy stuff. That's fantastic. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, 
I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash Toray for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, a, lot of we, a lot of what we talk about on the show is representation, mm-hmm. right? And... You know, you have been a hugely respected and beloved openly gay person in media, right? And I wonder how it's come back to you about the impact that you have had on that community Mm. through your success and the way that you uh, go about your business. Mm, I never, I never, I never think about it in those terms. So thank you for asking about it that way. Um, You know, the thing that I've been reflecting on along those lines in the last couple of years is how naive I was about progress on gay rights and queer rights in my lifetime. So I came out in 1990 when I was 17. So I've never not been out as an adult. Um, And I don't know what my life would have been like if I was closeted or, you know, it's not like... It's not like it. It's not like I'm hiding my light under a bushel like everybody everybody knows and everybody's known from the beginning. Um, But I think that I thought with things like don't ask, don't tell and marriage rights and non-discrimination language and all of these, you know, Washington-based signs of progress that the LGBTQ community secured through lots of activism – I think that I was naive in thinking about those things as a done deal. And they're not. And when you mean you th- the way that rights can be taken away. Yeah. Yeah. And to see now the, the assumptions that I made, I always used to, you know, give people advice, people in the business and people otherwise, you know, I, I can't tell you when to come out. You have to decide when to come out in terms of your tolerance for risk and what it's like in your culture and in your family and in your neighborhood in terms of being out, like you have to decide. But if you come out, it makes you stronger because it means that nobody can blackmail you. Nobody can hold that over you. Nobody can, you know, insult you with an epithet that you identify with, right? Like it doesn't, mm-hmm. um, it, it's a it's a stronger, safer place to be, to be out than not to be out. I wouldn't give that same advice now in that same really? oversimple way because I do think that the conservatives on the Supreme Court might undo marriage rights. I mean, I think, like, look at Italy, right? So in Italy, they've got Giorgio Maloney, who's got a post-fascist, who comes from a post-fascist party in Italy. Um, And she's immediately, immediately upon sort of pretending to national office, started going after gay parents' kids. It's going after gay parents in terms of their existing adoptions, right? Mm. Existing parental rights mm. and trying to unravel people's families, mm. right? And then we've got with, with here with the Trump appointees on the Supreme Court, they're saying, oh, yeah, you have the right to get married now, but we would like that to come back up before this court. And what happens to existing families, parents, spouses, you know, older people, um, if those rights get unraveled, they can get unraveled. And there is an pro- active project on the right to unravel them. Mm-hmm. And so me telling everybody, come out, come out, you'll be safer. Um, it's, not it's not the same thing. Like I, I feel like I was naive in terms of thinking about my own generation's experience as being prescriptive in terms of what was going to happen for future generations. And the current generations right now, people are getting chased out of individual states in the United States because of the attacks on their rights. You know, people are leaving anti-gay and anti-trans states and moving other places mm. to protect their family members. That's happening right now. Mm. That is not something I saw coming, and I feel naive about it. 
Mm. I mean, just the way that you live your life is, I know, because I hear it, is 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 inspiring to people. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, I, I, didn't, I don't count. I know how many black people there are in primetime news, yeah. one, right, in cable <laughs> news right now, right? Because that matters to me. And I look at joy and I'm proud, right? And um, I, I think, I don't know, I don't know that there's any openly gay people in primetime in the major networks. I yeah, don't I mean, I don't count. I, I don't keep a census. All right. But yeah, I, I, but don't know. I mean, yeah. like being that um, has been a huge sense of pride Yeah, for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and visibility matters. Representation yeah. matters. For yeah. Sure. But it's not everything. And no. the 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 prog progress is not linear. But there's girls. You're, you're, you feel, I feel you not wanting to say there are girls who watched you and were like, that gives me a little more self-confidence that mm. she's herself and succeeding. And I take that in and it, it gives me a little bit more wind underneath my wings. Mm. And you may never meet her or she may come up to you at a reading and be like, 30 years ago, I thought I could do this because you were doing that. Yeah. Um, I, I, for a it's different a lot of show, responsibility. <laughs> for, a for a different show, I did um, a man who is about our age. So he was uh, around 12 in the late seventies. Okay. He came out to his father and his father said, that's fine. But I just want you to know that I don't know of any happy gay adults. Mm. And the man took that in as a child, like, okay. And then when he saw the flourishing of disco in the late seventies, oh, wow. he saw all these happy gay adults and he's like, Oh, look, you can be that. Yeah. And it gave him new, a new purchase on this journey yeah. that he was living. And I think you have been that sort of person for a lot of people. Oh, that's interesting. That's really kind of you to say. I mean, I identify with that a little bit. I remember sort of coming out to myself when I was 16 and 17 and thinking, well, I don't like softball. <laughs> I'm scared of motorcycles. I don't really know, like from the media, I don't really know what other things you can do as the L word. Um, <laughs> but it, you have to be able to see yourself. Um, you have to be, you have to be able to see, you know, who you could become. I How'd get, you figure I get it out? Um, you know, part of it, this may sound going back to maybe sounding too kind of heady or intellectual again, but part of what made a difference for me was that if you think about that time period, 1989, 1990, what was going on? I grew up in the San Francisco Bay area. What was going on in 1989, 1990 in the San Francisco Bay area in the gay community? It was the apex, the AIDS. So that's, um, mm -hmm. was that, the, that was before Harvey Milk, after Harvey Milk? After Harvey Milk. But I think of, for me, the, for me, the, 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 the touchstone is protease inhibitors, which was 1996, which was the first class of drugs that gave people who are HIV positive the prospect of living a full lifespan. And when that happened in 1996, I mean, so you've got from, you know, from the 80s through the, you know, just the, the, the cavalcade of death years in the late 80s and the early 90s. And then in, finally in 1996, we started to get some drugs that worked and it started to keep people alive. And that sense of crisis and that like um, just explosion of the sense of time and how much time is, I mean, when you're 18 years old, you don't think about time pressure in terms of no. how long your life is going to be. No. Unless you've got friends in their 20s who are dying. Right, right. And then all of a sudden, every day is mm. 60 hours long, and it better be because you've got 60 hours of work to do to try to keep your friends alive. Mm. And so being part of coming out into that into a gay community that was in that much of crisis, um, being involved in the AIDS activist movement, having that sense of just of death and time pressure and so much to be done and so much desperation, like the idea of not being out and sitting that out and not trying to help was like, there was no, there was no choice. For sure. For sure. So it was a different, so it, was a, it was a different time. Yeah. Um, is the critique against the president Biden unfair? There's which, the, which the, critique? this, uh, this, this loud notion you see from 
politics to pop culture. He's old and out of it and doesn't even know where he is. This is the general, right? right. He's, I mean, more than Gerald, right? Gerald Ford, I think he tripped publicly once and Chevy Chase made a whole yeah. meal out of it. <laughs> and all any of us can remember is, well, he fell a lot, right? No, right. he was actually a division one football player. He was a very good athlete, <laughs> but like, all right, here we are. Um, but it it seems, I mean, I, I went to Dave Chappelle's show at the Garden. They're like, oh, Biden doesn't know which way is left. I'm like, even you, Dave? Like, what are yeah. we doing right now? But it, it, it's this sort of thing that we hear all the time. I mean, and, and what's the prescription, right? Oh, Biden's 80, and that is terrible. This age thing is just absolutely terrible. You know what we need? We need the 77-year-old guy instead. <laughs> right, 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 right. If they were putting up Nikki Haley or right, somebody yes, young, exactly. I, I get it. I, like, <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean, listen, I have— been in the Joe Biden orbit since he was in the United States Senate, right? Yeah. Since, I mean, he's been around forever, as long as you and I have been in public life yeah. and journalism and all. I mean, he's been around. He's always been the same guy. It's not like he's lost a step or like he's dopey now when he didn't used to be dopey. He's just the same Joe Biden that he's always been. He's really verbose, right? He's got very good political instincts. He wraps them in way too many words. And he generally delivers things at the political level that are moderate center-left solutions that have a practical impact in regular people's lives. Like, that's who Joe Biden has been the entire time. And there, he does not inspire passion. Nobody loves Joe. Nobody. Well, we like Joe. We don't love. We they loved Trump. I think a lot of us loved Obama. Yeah. Nobody loves Joe. But how valuable is that? Like, I'm oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, I've got love in my personal life. I don't need it in my <laughs> politics. One hundred percent. But 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 I think the American voter wants to fall in love. And I find myself quite mm. often saying, to, I don't love any of these candidates. I'm like, you don't want to love them. You don't need to love them. And it actually happens very rarely in your life as a voter that you will, I love this candidate. That's not normal. How about somebody who has good judgment? That sounds good. Who takes advice well from well-chosen people, oh. who has experience like and this. isn't intimidated by anything that can happen on the world stage and has a knack for passing legislation, even in divided government. How about that? Which is better, that or lust? <laughs> like, which is better, that or heart palpitations? You know what I mean? Like, I don't. That's what we want, yeah. right? They want heart palpitations. And we've given it to the electorate twice in what, 20, 20 some years with Obama and Trump? Hmm. People had feelings about Bill Clinton. I never did. But a lot of people had feelings about Clinton. Did the feelings, and I remember, Clinton, did not the feelings that we're talking about start after he was elected? Were we gaga for Clinton? No, he was the man from the... Hope, remember? I remember? It was a new generation. It was the first uh, post World War II yeah. resident. He was young. Look at those short shorts with MTV, the jogging. MTV, Arsenio. He, has, he did yes. his thing to be a pop culture figure. And people had feelings. I don't know that those feelings were predictive of anything about no. his presidency. No, it gets in the way of your judgment of the candidate of the of the elected official for sure. Yeah, so I don't. I mean, I don't know. You, I think you're right that people want those feelings, and they, you know, they want to. But you know, you also have there. There are also other things on the table, right? There, are, and anybody who's looking for love between Biden and Trump, <laughs> <laughs> I think basically, you know, needs um, needs a book club and a date more than they so need political advice. We know you as this genius, but you're also <laughs> an athlete. Are you not? Well, there's a lot of it in high school and you're like, wait, tell me what's going on. I, in, I was definitely a sporty kid. Um, but then I got into, I very unexpectedly got into college at a place where all the sports I played they were number one in the country. Stanford. And I wasn't that kind of an athlete. You know what I mean? Like, and so that was like kind of the end of my proper career. But yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I fish. Now. You That's fish? That's the thing that I do. I go fishing. What do you get? I fish for all sorts of things. I'm terrible, but I do it all the time. I really spend most of my time fishing for pike. Do you know what a pike is? I think they're so. They're long, narrow fish with gigantic teeth, and they're okay. freshwater fish. Okay. Yeah, and I fly fish for them and then throw them back. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Very yeah. humane. And they have, but the teeth thing is for real. Like they're real, like, yeah, it's real, super fun. How many have you caught? 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> you do, and you do this all the time. Yeah. So people for people for so mostly people who are doing freshwater fishing are fishing for bass or trout. And this and is in Massachusetts. Fun. In Massachusetts, right? Yeah. I live in Western New England. Um, and very comparatively, very few people fish for pike. And that's mostly because I don't think most people like to eat pike, even though you can. But I don't want to eat them anyway. Yeah. I just want to like meet them, say hello. Gotcha. Go tag. Tell, tell your mom I said hi. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah. I beat you, but keep going. So I do that, and it's nice because it's very solitary because there aren't the places that I go fishing, there aren't other people fishing there because nobody cares about this kind of fish. A pike. Yeah. What else do you do? You got to work out. You you have it. You look the same as you did when I met you. You. I do physical therapy for my terrible back. <laughs> <laughs> I have two 100-pound black labs that I wrestle into submission Dude. and try to work. They are like, it's like having, you know, like the Budweiser horses in the yeah. Christmas ads. It's like having, it's like having two of the Budweiser horses. They're like Clydesdale dogs. Oh. Gigantic. Do they like not know how big they are? Exactly. So they're kind of all over you and like, I might lose this wrestling match. Well, the thing is like my, my little dog, Francis, who's named after Pope Francis. He's so cute. Okay. He What's will, if you're thing? sitting in a chair and talking to him, like, engaging with him as if he's a human and he can understand you, he will just get up on his hind legs and put his front legs on your shoulders. And like just listen. Because he thinks he's a little dog. But he'll crush you and knock you over in your chair because he's 100 pounds. My favorite thing in the world. And <laughs> and what's the other dog's name? Charms. Na <laughs> so two boys, Named Francis and Charms. Lucky Charms is serious? Kind of, yeah. There's a, there's a, do you know that poem, Death Be Not Proud by John Donne? You probably, you would know it if you recognized it. John Donne, famous ancient poet um, had this, has this beautiful poem called death be not proud. And there's a line in that poem about how um, we basically turn to earthly pleasures and things to make ourselves feel better about the world, to distract ourselves from the fact that death is coming. And the line that Dunn uses is that he says, we turn to poppy and charms, poppy meaning drugs uh -huh. and charms meaning magic things to distract ourselves. So for a long time, we had two dogs whose names were Poppy, Poppy and, and Charms. Charms. Oh my God. And then Poppy passed on. I'm sorry. Um, and as dogs do, and we still have Charms, but now his little nephew is Francis, named after the Pope, which I find hilarious, <laughs> endlessly hilarious. <laughs> I always love the stories of people who name their dogs like the N-word. And then like, <laughs> they're like, yeah, and like people are like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah, do I not like name that. your child an epithet. No, no. It will be hilarious for a day. Not for, then. yeah, not for a, not for a child. No. Some people, you know, I went to this, talking about Massachusetts, I went to this men's um, retreat several years ago to learn how to process and feel emotions and these sort of things. Very difficult things yeah. for men. And I learned a lot. Um, one of the things that we got down to talking about was like, Almost everyone, if you go down to like the real bottom of your emotional well, almost everyone is sad, angry, or scared. Hmm. Do you think that you are feeling one of those three things like at the, at the, at the bottom of your emotional well? Hmm. I think that this is not a direct answer, which I will acknowledge at the outset so you can press me. <laughs> but I think that anger and shame are first cousins. Okay. And so I think what, what, what manifests as anger um, is almost often shame and, um, or sometimes guilt, but mostly it's shame. And that if you can get to anger and then go down a little deeper than that, um, where you end up is with things that you hate about yourself mm -hmm. um, or things that you're embarrassed about, about yourself. And so I feel like anger never is the bottom okay. for me. Okay. There's something below that. But it was, so you said scared anger, scared, or, or sad. sad. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm all of those things in some ways. Um, but I try really hard. The reason I think I've done this extra thinking about anger is I try never to act from that place. Oh, for sure. I just try not to let that be my... Especially, base for your, you know, especially you now. Yeah, you can't. It's so sensitive and there's so many cameras and like, I just, I would never want to explode from anger 
And then, right? And then I'm mortified. I'm sorry I put or that even, on you. Not even just acting out anger, but planning your actions, being strategic from that place where that you're ang- starting from anger and having that be your place of justification, no matter what rational or, or you know, attractive seeming thing that you do. If that's where it's, if that's what's motivating it, it's almost never wise. Yeah. Um, but that's like, I'm interested about how that connects to the way we were talking about empathy. Because you were saying that my trying to have empathy for people who are enthralled by Trump is something you don't identify with at all. But that's me trying to think around my anger mm. and be not be defensive, not be scared, mm. not be angry, um, and instead to come at it from a whole, a soft-hearted, non-defensive place to help me understand so that we can get past this bad place that we're do you, in. Do you, you don't have to name specific individuals, but do you have folks in your, you know, like we have like a, a circle of people who we must interact with, right? Some are yeah. family, some are friends of friends, and I can't get away from you. Are Do you have folks like that in your life who are Trump folks? Yes. And like you have to talk to them and like- I mean, being a 50-year-old white person, like- What's going on with the Trump dynamic? Like, it's a lot of 50-year-old white people. So, like, just demographically, like, the Trump crowd looks like me. Sure. So, and I'm very cognizant of that. I also live in rural America. So, I live, yes, it's Massachusetts, which is a blue state, but any rural area in any state. Always red. Is always red. And my town is very heterogeneous politically. But that, I feel like, again, it's, it's good. Because if you live... In the country, particularly like really in the country, like I'm in a town of like, you know, less than 800 people, it doesn't – you can't afford to care that somebody voted for X person. Like you all need to get the bears out of your trash. You all need to <laughs> dig out the fire hydrant after the snowstorm. Yeah. You all need to be there to help when somebody's family is in crisis. Like you, you need to be able to see people – to see the humanity in people to empathize with people and to recognize somebody as a peer regardless of politics. And that is very valuable. But they are not seeing the humanity in us. They are. It's always, if you can look somebody in the eye and you are being helpful to somebody as a peer, it is always mutual. Your neighbors may see the humanity in you because they know you, right? That's not what we're really that's not the project, right? The point mm-hmm. is, can you extend humanity to people who are not like you, mm-hmm. who are, you know, who who are different, who you do not know, right? And yeah. I think it's easy to say, hey, that black person, that gay person, I know they're cool. Mm-hmm. But, you know, gay people, black people, like. But it's not, it's not yeah. a theoretical project. Like, I think we are in, the thing that we're all worried about is that we are entering a political moment where one of the major movements and maybe the ascendant political movement in America is going to start telling adherents of that movement that their political enemies are not human. Yes. They are termites and parasites and vermin that need to be exterminated. Yes. And we need to get to work on that project. In that moment, there will be people in your town. There will be people in your life. There will be people in the concentric circles of your social experience that are being conditioned to not see you as a human being. Make sure they see you as a human being and make sure that you see them as a human being because then you are a speed bump on the way toward that dynamic taking over our society. You have to. I mean, people, this is not a time when you can live in your phone. This is not a time when you can have no real world interactions with people and only live through, you know, the media and video games. Like this is not, this is not that time. There has to be human contact because we have to slow down the atrocities that were being set up for. I, I, I don't know that I can find the grace for people who hate me mm. and don't know, don't know me and hate me. I don't know how to do that. Well, what's the alternative? Thanks so much to Rachel for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. Maybe this show can help. You can find me on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our engineer is Claire McHale. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed 
by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.